You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text and sermon this morning, I would invite you to open your Bibles first to the Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 14. We'll read there the verses 1 through 11. The second half of this book of Zechariah is all about the day of the Lord. It talks about the day of the Lord in many different and seemingly contrasting ways. Because, of course, the day of the Lord is more than just a day. It is the the time brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ, by His coming into this world, the time that we now live in and will come to fulfillment at the end of the age when He returns to judge the living and the dead. That is what these verses of Zechariah are speaking about as we read them together this morning. Zechariah 14, the verses 1 through 11. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, and the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Thus far, reading of God's word from the Old Testament. Now let's turn to the New Testament, to the book of John, from which our text will be taken this morning. We'll go a few chapters further to chapter 7, the verses 37 through 44. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. 
Our text this morning is the Word of God from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That would be around in noontime. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come. keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I'm he. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first few verses of our text this morning take us back to where Jesus is in his ministry. He has been with his disciples, or his disciples have been with him around baptizing. And now, after the Pharisees find out that he is gaining disciples seemingly wanting to avoid the inquisition of the Pharisees, or at least put it off for the time being, Jesus decides to head north to Galilee. Verse 4 of our text informs us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now that's very interesting, because from what we know about the area, Jesus and his disciples did in fact not have to go through Samaria 
In fact, the Jews and the Samaritans were on such bad terms that even though it would have made far more sense to go straight through Samaria to go up to Galilee, they had made a route that went all the way around Samaria so they could avoid even setting foot in that place with those ethnic half-breeds and false worshippers. So in a way, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. And yet, as John tells us in our text, he did have to go. John doesn't explain exactly what that means. But it seems that Jesus was compelled by his mission, by God, by the Holy Spirit, to go to Samaria. Traveling through Samaria, it's hot and dry. He comes to the town of Sychar, and there he stops along with his disciples at a well. Jacob's well. Apparently, if you were to go there today, you could still see this well. Of course, I've already mentioned it, you have to realize that this journey through Samaria was a journey for Jesus and his disciples. More his disciples than Jesus, of course, as this text shows. But for Jews to travel through Samaria was a trip through hostile territory. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They hated each other. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. John says it simply in verse 9, Jews and Samaritans don't associate. And there were several reasons for this. One was that the Jews viewed the Samaritans as as ethnic half-breeds because though they had roots uh, as Israelites, as, as Jews, they mixed with the people. They were basically the people left in Israel after the exile. And when the Israelites were exiled, then then other Gentiles, people of other nationalities, were brought into Israel, and they mixed with these Israelites and became the Samaritans. They were not pure Jews in the eyes of the Jews. The deeper issue between these two groups, however, was religion. They served God differently. The Samaritans used a different Bible than the Israelites had. They only followed the first five books of of Moses, and they believed that Mount Gerizim in Samaria was the holy mountain where God was to be worshipped, and they rejected Jerusalem and the temple there. Of course, the temple in Jerusalem was very precious to the Jews, and so to reject the temple was to reject them and their God and their way of worshipping. And so these ethnic and religious tensions caused fighting and resentment on both sides. And so as Jesus comes to Sychar, to the well of Jacob, tired after a long journey, baking under that hot Middle Eastern sun, even then, thirsty and tired as he was, it was completely out of the ordinary and questionable, perhaps even reprimandable in the eyes of many Jews, for Jesus to speak to a Samaritan and a woman at that. He was a Jewish man, and she was a Samaritan woman. Of course, the woman picks up on that. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And so, with these words, the woman unfolds for us a situation that's full of social and ethnic and religious tensions. If the Garden of Eden, where there were perfect relationships and there were no sin, was a rich and lush garden, 
This place where Jesus has just stopped is a barren desert wasteland. The tension brought by sin, the brokenness, the trouble, the hardship is all around. But as Jesus sits down for a drink under that hot sun, Jesus brings to that place living water. Jesus brings living water to Samaria. We'll see what that living water is. What is that water? What it does? How it works? How it operates? And where the living water goes? From where it comes and from where to where it goes? Jesus brings living water. As he sits down to drink from Jacob's well, refreshing, cool water, he brings himself living water. What this living water is. Well, Jesus certainly comes into this situation that's full of tension, but he, of course, isn't limited or at all stopped by social barriers erected by Jews and Samaritans. He isn't stopped by racism or ethnic prejudice, by chauvinism or sexism. In fact, those are the barriers that Jesus himself came to this world to destroy. These are sinful human actions and reactions welling up from the barren spiritual desert of the natural human heart. A heart that is about self-interest and self-defense and which lashes out with racism and prejudice and chauvinism and sexism. Jesus came to fix that. Jesus has come to bring living water. Water that refreshes and enlivens, which brings to life. Just as the well from Jacob's, uh, the water from Jacob's well sustains life, did for Jacob and his sons and their flocks and herds, this water sustains eternal life. A life that is focused on God, life that is for God, life that is forever with God. A life where sin is defeated where racism and prejudice are overcome, where selfishness is driven away, and where love for God and neighbor grows and abounds and bears fruit. That's what this living water is. That's the living water that Jesus mentions as he's talking to this woman in verses 10 through 15. So what exactly is this living water and how does Jesus bring it? Well, if we consider the context here in this book of John, as well as the rich revelation of the Old Testament, and you realize that this living water that Jesus is talking about is nothing less than the Spirit of God Himself. You may recall that in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and and He says that you must be reborn of water and spirit. We saw there that water and spirit are really talking about the same thing, about the Holy Spirit and the cleansing and renewing work that the Spirit does. Both of those, these passages in John 3 and John 4, they're drawing from the Old Testament, which is speaking about water and the Spirit on many occasions, Ezekiel 36, where the Spirit's water cleanses and renews life. Psalm 46, where the Spirit's water makes glad the city of God. The Spirit brings this life-giving water to the city and to the people of God. In Zechariah 14, which we read together, 
where the living water will pour out from Jerusalem will go east and west. Just like the Spirit poured out from Jerusalem after Pentecost. You can see in the first few chapters of Acts in which we experience today as the Gospel continues to go out in this world. So this is living water, which which washes away sin and its effects, which nourishes those who drink it to eternal life. It's nothing less than the Spirit of God Himself coming down from heaven. The Spirit of God as He applies to our heart the finished work of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ gets gets connected to our hearts. Jesus Christ died for sin. He gained victory over sin. That's what He did. The Spirit takes that work of Jesus and applies that to our our hearts, washes our hearts with it, and then renews our hearts to live out of that forgiveness in praise to God. So God's people are are made alive and cleansed and renewed. You might have seen the picture on some nature videos, if you've ever seen the Planet Earth video series. It's in there. About the Serengeti in Africa. At one point in the year, that place is like a, a barren desert. It's a place place that sucks life, that takes life. It's hot, it's overpowering, it's life-taking, it's hostile, it's uninhabitable. Thousands of animals flee that place during the hot months. But then as the seasonal rains come, the water seeps over the earth and, and along with it, you can almost watch it happen, it brings life. It brings renewal. It brings refreshment. It washes away all the the death and carnage left by the heat. By the the desert-like conditions. The overwhelming presence of water changes the landscape. That's living water. That's water that brings life. That's a picture of the kind of water that Jesus, the Messiah, brings. But as Jesus is talking to this woman about living water, you'll notice that she doesn't really get it. She doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about the power of God to to wash away sin, to scrub away its effects on her heart and her life, to fill her life with the riches of eternal life now, in the present, and in the future. She thinks this water is pretty good because then she won't have to keep coming back to the well to get more. She's missing the point. So Jesus is going to have to show her what this living water does. So we come to our second point, what the living water does. And as Jesus is going to show her, teach her what it does, he does it in a surprising way. How does he teach this woman? Well, he brings up the adulterous relationship that she's in now and her sinful past. Notice how even this... Jesus knows the life of this woman and he he brings it up, he exposes it. Notice how that highlights the work of the Spirit to, to scrub away the effects of sin and to apply the work of Jesus Christ to the life of believers. Because Jesus Christ has come from heaven, the man come from God, 
The man who is God, come from heaven, became a man. He's come to deal with sin. And he knows how to deal with sinners. That's what he's come to do. And so he gets right to the issue with this woman as he exposes her sin. He exposes it so that he can apply the cleansing water of the Spirit who brings forgiveness and renewal. That water can only come and and bring life into a place and situation where there is death, which it can renew. That's the situation of the, the human heart, the natural human heart, without the living water of the Spirit. It's like a parched, dry desert. It needs that living water. So Jesus exposes the heart of this woman for what it is. And as Jesus applies the living water to our lives, He does the same thing. He does it through His Word. He does it through His law. He does it as He teaches us to to know ourselves, to know our need for this life that only the Spirit brings. And in speaking about these, this woman's five marriages, he's also displaying his supernatural knowledge. Uh, Nathaniel earlier had been impressed by the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. And so this woman is overwhelmed by Jesus' knowledge and it leads her to confess that he must be a prophet. But exposing the heart of this woman, you realize as, as the text goes on, Jesus exposes her life and, and her heart. And it draws this confession out of the woman, but yet she steps back and throws up the walls of defense. And in verse 20 of our text, she immediately changes the topic. And that's a common tactic. If the sinfulness of your heart, those selfish motivations get exposed, you throw up the walls of defense. We don't like to be exposed, and we have, we have trouble with the depths of the Lord's insight into our own hearts. We don't want to go there, and so we erect those, those walls to stop. Walls, dams, and dikes, those are good for keeping water out, right? That's what we do. That's what we build. No living water here, thanks. I'm doing fine on my own. But the wall that this Samaritan woman throws up, as Jesus is speaking to her, is a significant one. It's the Jew-Samaritan divide, which we talked about earlier. It's large. It would have seemed insurmountable to people in those days for Jesus to come and to evangelize this woman, to, to reach out for her, to be able to reach over this wall, this great divide between Jew and Samaritan, in order to bring the gospel to her. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that we must worship in Jerusalem. And it's a significant problem. Look, she's saying, you can talk to me about living water and eternal life. You may even be a prophet. When it comes right down to it, I'm a Samaritan and we worship on Gerizim. You're a Jew. You guys worship in Jerusalem. Essentially, why don't we just make our peace, acknowledge our differences, and leave it at that? That wall was a big one. They hated each other. They both thought they were ethnically superior to each other. They fundamentally agreed about religion and theology, about how to serve the Lord. 
And so how would Jesus overcome this wall, this wall that no one in his time was, was even thinking about destroying, taking down? They were quite happy to build it higher. How would Jesus get through? How would he get over this wall? Well, the fact is that Jesus had no plans to get over this wall. He was going to destroy it. That's precisely what Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has come into the world to do. He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and appointed to destroy the sinfulness that rests in human hearts and that Satan uses to to exploit ethnic and racial and sexual differences. For the living water that Jesus brings, the walls of of human making, such as ethnic prejudice and even sinful adultery, grievous sins. But for the living water that Jesus brings, all those walls are like the walls of a sandcastle that children build on the beach in the summertime. They can work on them for a long time. They can be big and look very impressive, but as the tide rises, and as those waters come in, that wall does not have a chance. The sheer power of the water washes them away and overpowers them. Where the Spirit of God is coming and applying that finished work of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, the Spirit will prevail. Where the Spirit is working in sinful hearts, the Spirit will prevail, just like the tide will prevail against that wall of sand. Because Jesus came for just this reason. He went to the cross. He was burdened down with sins such as these, racial prejudice, adultery. And He paid for them on the cross. He defeated them. He triumphed over them. When you take your sins to Jesus and hand them to Him in repentance with with regret and disgust, He will bring living water. He will apply His Spirit and wash them away. Overpower them. And reinvigorate you to worshiping God. So we come to our last point where this living water flows. We've seen that it flows where there is sin and sinful hearts that erect barriers to stand against it. But you realize that the point this woman raises isn't completely illegitimate. Doesn't she have a valid point when she talks about the differences between Jerusalem and Gerizim? They weren't nothing. And Doesn't Jesus agree when he says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know? We Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. There's more than just the ethnic. It's certainly there, but there's more than just the ethnic of of prejudice separating Jews and worship. There's also the the issue of God-ordained worship. Of God-ordained worship was was from the Jews and for the Jews. The Jews were the chosen people of God. Jerusalem was where God's temple was. Jesus declares to this woman, 
That a time is coming and has now come where living waters will flow out from Jerusalem and over all the earth. And as a result, true worship will exist in every place on this world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is believed and confessed in spirit and in truth. For Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who brings the day of the Lord. With Him, the living waters come and spread to east and west in summer and winter all over the world. He's the promised King of the Old Testament who comes to triumph over sin. And that triumph will be so profound that it will erupt like a geyser in Jerusalem and flow throughout the entire world wherever sin is found. As part of this work, Jesus will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And He'll raise it up again in three days in Himself. His death, you may know from the other Gospels, caused the the curtain in the temple to rip. Because that curtain now ceased to be of any use. The temple of stone and brick in Jerusalem would, for the intents and purposes of the the people of God, worshipping God, become like a museum. A place with a significant past, significance in the past, but no use for the future. Because that's not where worship happens anymore. The Old Testament would be destroyed, and Jesus, the new temple, becomes the place of worship. The temple is the sacred place where God meets man and worship happens. And for us, that is in Jesus Christ. That's where worship happens. In Jesus Christ. In His work on our behalf. In His death and resurrection. In His Spirit. In Jesus Christ. This place, it's functional. It's a good place to meet together. But it's not holy. It's not essential. We could be worshipping in a barn, worshipping in a marvel of architectural wonder, and it would be meaningless if we were not worshipping in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. As Jesus explains to this woman, yet a time is coming and has now come, because Jesus has now come, and the time of His death and resurrection is coming, when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus isn't saying that in the Old Testament they didn't worship in spirit and truth. God's law certainly prescribes truth in worship. And the Old Testament reveals that, that though there are outward actions like sacrifices, it's the, it's the expressions of the, the inward heart, the, the motivations of the heart in sacrifice that are most important. The repentance and humility and faith and thanks and praise. True worship has always been in spirit and in truth. But Jesus is saying that He comes now as the fulfillment of those outward forms of worship that God had prescribed in the Old Testament. The the temple and the sacrifices. They're, They're fulfilled in Him. The temple's done. The sacrifices are done. And so in Jesus, worship is truly and fully in spirit and in truth. God is spirit in a way that He's invisible and He's everywhere. Thus, the true worshipers will worship God in a way that's unseen with the human eye, with the unseen motives of repentance and humility and faith and thanks and praise. That's true worship, but it also must be in 
in truth. In the truth of Jesus Christ, though invisible in its essence, it's not untestable. It has to conform to the truth that Jesus Christ has revealed in His Word. It must be guided by God's Word. So there's this balance there. Let me give a couple of quick examples. In in recent times, for a number of reasons, one of them being the the coming on of Pentecostal theology, the influence of uh, the emphasis of the Spirit, also of of our modern age when we're very much about experiences and, and feelings. People, Christians, have emphasized the spiritual dimension of worship with the result that, that worship, as long as it is, is spiritual, is, is unseen, can't be judged in any way. So, no matter what you feel or experience inside, as, as long as it can be called spiritual, it's okay. God can whisper something to you, and, and that's effective. Or God can put a certain feeling in your heart, and, and that can't be judged or tested because it's spiritual. But the truth dimension, worship is in spirit and in truth, counters the abuse of the spiritual. But does God really whisper to us? Or does He reveal Himself in His Word? Can we not test these things by His Word? Everything can be tested because worship is also in truth. It must be tested according to God's Word. Even the invisible so-called spiritual worship must be done in conformity to the truth. But another example, and the flip side of this, of course, of course, is, is that the, in reality, that the worship may outwardly be in truth, may, you might have been able to cross off all the right boxes in terms of what God has prescribed in His Word and, and how worship should be done, have all the right forms and expressions and, and even words. But if it's not done in spirit, then it's not worship. Worship begins in the heart, in the inward motivations of of thanks and praise and repentance and humility. The desire to glorify God and finds its expression in those outward forms. And so it's wrong to assume or demand a worship that is mostly or exclusively interested in the external act while ignoring or neglecting the heart. Spirit and truth. Truth and and spirit. That's why worship must be in Jesus Christ. That's why worship in Christ is in spirit and truth. The action of rejoicing in Jesus Christ that begins deep in the heart because of the even deeper in the heart work of the Holy Spirit is worship. It begins as a response to what Jesus Christ has done. It it begins in in a, a newly formed life within us. And finds expression. But in both that internal source and in its expression, it submits himself to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. It conforms itself to his word. That's worship that grows and and abounds in the deep living waters of the Holy Spirit. That's worship that points us to the victory over sin. In Jesus Christ. 
And so we must believe in Jesus Christ. Look to His victory over sin. See what He has done on our behalf. Go to Him as the one who gives the living waters and ask that He would give us His Holy Spirit in our lives to enliven, renew, refresh us to eternal life. In whatever we're facing, we have that comfort for our loved ones who died in that knowledge. We have that comfort for ourselves. And we have the call to ever and again go to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gives living waters in abundance, living waters that well up to eternal life. Now let's go to Him and ask that He would grant these things to us. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ in Heaven, from whom Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, proceeds, we look to You in faith, find in You the triumph over sin and the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask, O Lord, that You would apply to our lives and grow us in the living waters of the Spirit. We pray that Your Spirit would point us back to You, Lord Jesus, and to Your work accomplished on the cross for our sake. And that we would find in that the assurance of salvation and also the power to overcome the sin in our lives as Your Spirit scrubs away its effects upon us. Holy Father, we thank You for the Spirit who assures us of Your love and of Your mission in sending Jesus Christ on our behalf. We pray that the Spirit would work in our midst to cause us to grow in true worship, in spirit and in truth, in Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.